0: president of University Partners at Kaplan. And thanks for joining me again for our Bold Leaders and Learning session. I'm excited today uh, to have my guest Maria Flynn, who is the president and CEO of Jobs for the Future, what people know as JFF. And we are gonna be talking about reskilling and upskilling today, which I know is a subject that many of you tuned in uh, are very interested in and deeply invested in. So Maria, thank you for carving out the time I would love for you to just tell folks a little bit more about your own personal background and career trajectory, and then tell us more about JFF for those who don't know about it.
1: Sure, absolutely. Well, thanks, Brandon. It's great to be here. Thanks. Uh, sure. Thanks, everyone who's tuning in. So as Brandon said, I'm Maria Flynn. I'm the CEO of Jobs for the Future. So I have really spent my whole career kind of working at the intersection of education and workforce. Uh, first, I did that at the U.S. Department of Labor, where I worked for over 15 years, uh, worked for the Employment Training Administration and ran the Office of Policy and Research there uh, for several years. And that's where I really just really grew a passion around how can we make these traditional systems more efficient and more effective for all learners, particularly those who are underserved, come from underrepresented um, communities and how can we get kind of the different pieces of this ecosystem to work together in better ways. And so I left there um, in 2007 because I felt I wanted to have a platform where I could do that work from a bit of a more of a innovative uh, angle or, or lens. And so I felt that JFF was a great place to do that Um, I have been here since 2007. I became CEO uh, of the organization about three and a half years ago. Um, And, you know, it really is the place that I had hoped for, right? I think it's a place where we can really engage deeply on some of these key issues that I would argue are kind of the key issues of our generation. Um, And we do that in a number of different ways. So a little bit about JFF. We have been around for almost 40 years. So we were about the future of work way before it became a uh, hashtag. Yeah, uh, we were right. founded in 1983 uh, mm-hmm. by Hillary Pennington, who's now the executive vice president at the Ford Foundation, um, and her co founder, Arthur White, who came out of the business community in, in Connecticut. And we were founded at a time where Hillary and Arthur really felt that um, government, particularly states in that moment, we're not keeping pace to the changes that were happening in industry and the skill changes that were happening, particularly in the manufacturing industry back in the 80s, right? So a lot of the same things that we're seeing now um, is what they really launched JFF to to tackle. So we have grown a lot over the years. We do work um, across kind of many facets from implementation of initiatives to policy and research to, technical assistance and capacity building to players in the field, um, and really work kind of population wise, like middle middle school students through adult workers and kind of the systems that touch them from K-12, traditional public workforce system, higher ed um, and employers. And we do kind of a mix of policy focused work and practice focused work. So it's great to be here and um, Particularly to dig into upskilling and reskilling at such a critical time.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, and as, as you noted, right? You guys, uh, you guys were the original future of work. Uh, you know, kind of owners, and uh, now, of course, that's a topic that you know is essentially the, you know, the topic of every conference, webinar, uh, article. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you guys have been at this a while. You've seen it from a number of angles. To your point, policy on the ground, you know, programs implementation, right? Everything in between. So what I wanted to do was just maybe uh, talk a little bit about what was the state of upskilling and reskilling pre-COVID, right? Because obviously a lot going on in this arena, there were the, you know, the, the rise of the, you know, what we'll call the education as a benefits movement in the few years before COVID, there's been, you know, kind of a rise in interest and support of things like apprenticeship, Uh, obviously a proliferation of things like high value industry recognized certifications, right? So I want you to just give the sense of what that was pre COVID. And then I would love to segue to what's happening now, right? During the pandemic, you guys have already put out some thoughtful pieces that I'll ask you about. And then from there, I want you to kind of project into the future and tell us, you know, what's going to happen post pandemic, right? Uh, What trends were already you know, moving us rapidly in a new direction, irrespective of a pandemic. But let's just start with, you know, where where was the state of upskilling and reskilling before this global pandemic enveloped us all?
1: No, I think that's great. I think the examples you listed are the, are the right ones. Like I would kind of track us back to maybe like the early 2000s, because that's when I really felt that we saw a shift right in, in kind of how we thought about workforce in this country and it's a little sad to think that like it, it took that long but I do think it wasn't until then that this idea that like training and workforce should be demand driven like actually became a thing right and I actually credit my boss at the time um, Emily Draca who was the assistant Secretary of Labor back then like that was what she was all about and it's a little weird to think about it now, but like she got a lot of pushback about that, right? Cause I think folks were feeling like that it was really more of a, like a social service or it was like a sat over more on the welfare kind of side of the house. But I think, you know, fair to say, like, I think we saw a, a shift there that, okay, this is all about getting individuals the skills they need for jobs. And we need to design these programs and these offerings in a way that reflects um, labor market demand. Great. So then I think we went into a period of like almost like a workforce renaissance, right? Where we saw some really great things happening, like things that you listed, right? We saw corporations really stepping up in new ways, right? We saw corporations, I'll say like Walmart, for example, starting to shift their mindset from, I think before, a mindset of if we train someone and they leave, then that's a loss for us, right? I think shifting to now it's really in the best interest for the company and the corporation and our workers if we make these investments in our people and not just our executives, but all of our workforce, right? So those are like pretty big moves, right? We saw the Obama administration put $2 billion into community colleges through the TACT program, right? To really explore innovations and training for adult workers. We started to see the rise, you know, of kind of technology solutions, you know, boot camps, kind of different offerings, which are uh-huh. super exciting. So lots of lots of good things happening. Um, but through that, you know, this threat, like a real threat of automation and what's that going to do to, to disrupt our labor market. What are the jobs of the future going to look like? How do we get people prepared, you know, if their jobs are going to go away? I would say then like right before the pandemic hit, in a lot of ways, I feel like, while there was still innovation, there was also a bit of like analysis paralysis, right? A lot of Mm -hmm. reports about future work, but to me, like not enough like practical action around like, okay, well, what are we actually going to do differently? So then I think, you know, March, like, I think the game changed, right? Everything changed. I think the, um, Andrew Yang spoke at an event we had in June and he said, you know, we saw 10 years of change in 10 weeks, right? And I think that was particularly true for the field that you and I work in, right? These things that were like hypotheses, like overnight, they were reality. Um, And I think the folks that are bearing the brunt of that are the folks who have, Born the brunt of you know, kind of system, you know, misfunctioning th- through the decades, right? Are the people of color, the frontline workers, the folks who yeah. you know don't have um, the resources, the skills, the information they need to to do well, kind of in this um, environment. So, so then I think you know, now we are all saying, okay, you know, we have we went from a time of historically low unemployment to historically high unemployment, like practically overnight. We have everyone switching to online learning. We have traditional systems, whether it be K-12, public workforce systems that have not gone through the digital transformation that they should have been going through, right? So kind of being caught flat-footed in this moment. But all the while, like the threat of automation and technological advancement, like that hasn't changed, right? So that trajectory is still going on and like pointing yeah. ahead while we have, while we're trying to find our footing kind of in the moment of today.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know, to your point, you know, a lot of those things that were already building momentum, right? Coming the pandemic now, almost all of them have been sped up, right? When you yeah. think about companies. Thinking automation, right? Well, you know, what better time to exactly. go go after that when you know your pandemic? It's a chance to reset things, and you know, no, you know, no, no crisis wasted kind of mentality as a lot of these organizations are thinking about it. And so, and then you know, unlike I mean, you know, I'm not an economist and I'm not a historian, right? But these are important things that that I you know I spend a lot of time paying attention to. But you, know, you think in this particular labor market disruption and, and in many cases the people who are losing jobs right are losing jobs in retail yep. and it's not it's not like there's big growth in other retail now there's been some shift from like okay my store closed down to now i'm delivering you know for grubhub right like right. you know but but the point is like there's there's now i think going to be where there, there were you know adjacent pivots to similar jobs, I think there's gonna be fewer of those adjacent pivots, which then puts more emphasis on the need for upskilling, reskilling, right? And I'd like to ask you this question, right? Because I think we we think about it from a number of perspectives. We think about upskilling, reskilling in terms of, okay, what are the jobs we need to fill? Now let's go get people trained for them. But on the other side, there's a human being who's thinking to him or herself, I. Have interest in that? I'm not capable of doing that. Well, how could I ever imagine myself doing that? So even though there might be this job out there, you still have the, I'll call it the, all the factors of intrinsic motivation and self-efficacy that go into this. So even if I have the world's greatest training program and I have a job on the other end, tell me a little bit about that, right? What kinds of things are, is JFF doing and seeing in the I'll call it the, the the human demand side of this equation, right?
1: No, I think it's right. And to me, the whole like category of information, navigation, you know, motivation is where I feel like as a nation we have the most work to do. Like while well, there have been great like pockets of activity that have been happening. And you know, I saw a some survey results earlier in the summer that said that, um, I think it was a survey of like personal service workers, I think hospitality workers and a pretty low percent of them were actually saying that they wanted to switch careers, right? But I really kind of questioned the way the question had been worded because I think you know a lot of it was, could have been driven by their lack of knowledge and awareness like of what was possible right and i think that for like many many millions of workers like that's what they're facing right and i think you know if you think about where does your you know average worker go to find out that information so yes like there is the public workforce system that's accessible for for that Questionable whether their information is always like the best. I'm sorry, I love that system, but it's like, and it's also going to vary like in quality, honestly, from you know, community to community, right? So I think it's how you really track information about what careers are possible. Because I think to your point, like back in the when I was at USDOL, we did a project in northern New Jersey where we were mapping you know retail workers at jersey gardens the outlet center there by new york airport and really mapping pathways for those workers into both like aerospace and customer service jobs at the airport right very tangible and very like you could see it it's like they're right across the highway right and it was um and as you said like i think those days unfortunately are behind us right where it was kind of that seemed advanced at the time, now that seems pretty simple. Um, And so I think just how you can build awareness of what's what's out there, what training do you need, what credentials are going to be of value to you um, is really critical. We have a few tools that we have at JFF. So one that's focused on middle school students, which is called possible futures, possible selves to help them really start thinking about their future at, at that age Um, We also have a tool called My Best Bets, which is geared more for young people to use with a counselor. Um, All the Job Corps centers in the country are using that right now for their students. Um, They call it My Pace. So it's something that we feel really strongly about. We're also involved in the Skill Up Coalition that was announced earlier this summer. So they're using a great online platform that gets you know kind of just to this issue of both that career navigation and the Kind of training navigation pieces um, combined.
0: Yeah, t- tell me a little bit more about skill up because, as I understand it, right, the, the part of it is is helping people kind of assess based on their previous experiences, yep. right? Based on some specific skill sets or adjacent ad- yep. adjacent skills they might have, things that are easily transferable to other fields. Uh, it starts to give them some of that guidance, and so I'd just love to hear a little bit more about what it what it's what it's designed to do.
1: Absolutely. So. Um, The platform is up and running, so folks uh, can go check it out now. And it's exactly what you said with just a few, uh, you put in a few pieces of information, but it helps you kind of look at what the job was that you had, um, gives you kind of examples of what can be next for you, you know, based on some information, and then gives you the opportunity to either kind of go directly and apply for those jobs, or to go down an upskilling path, you know, and then maps out what providers are available, you know, kind of in those different fields. Um, Also includes kind of navigation services and over time we'll be uh, building out like a financing tool as part of that as well. So I I think it's, it is, we're excited about it at JFF because we believe it's the kind of platform that can really impact workers at scale. Um, And it's also exciting to me because we have a lot of kind of our partners uh, in this space who are all like diving in together on it, which is also great. You know, I think we're a field that too often, I think, you know, we're kind of, Working in parallel, we have like parallel play going on, and this is like actually an example of where we're uh, coming together around a common platform.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good example of the parallel play. Uh, a lot of a lot of well intentioners who are doing really good stuff, but you know, not really thinking of themselves and acting as an ecosystem. And I think we're, we're whether we all want to or not, I think we're just going to be forced into more examples of ecosystem type operating right. Uh, and so that I think is going to be a theme that will will grow over time. You know, I'm interested in uh, one of the other you know big. Well, I'll call it a, a guide guidepost or a set of uh, guidelines you guys put out around what you're calling an equitable recovery. And you know, certainly, you know, look, we, we're we're talking about the things that a that a global pandemic has forced, but we're also amidst uh, you know an, an entirely other. Uh, pandemic of sorts, right? With with racial equality, so uh, that just continue to be exacerbated. Tell me a little bit about the, the recovery framework that you guys have, have, have so thoughtfully uh, crafted.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, a framework that's really designed both for kind of federal policy conversations as well as state policy conversations. And very much to your point, it's really coming from a starting point of that, you know, this, our economy was not working for everyone before the pandemic. Um, And so how do we, you know, recover better, right? How can we have a more equitable recovery kind of across the board? Um, How do we, and I think it's important for folks like me who have worked in the system a long time to really come to terms with the fact that these, you know, systems that we often fight for appropriations for, that we spend a lot of our time protecting, really have, you know, left a lot of our, you know, black learners and workers and learners of color behind, right? So how do we really kind of take a step back and paint a picture of how can we um, be better moving forward? So we have three pillars in this. One is helping people rebound and advance in the economy, right? So reskilling, upskilling certainly fits in there. The second is how do we build inclusive regional economies, right? So how do we start to really bring economic development to the forefront as part of these education and workforce development conversations, right? Cause these all need to be working in tandem with one another. And then the third is really kind of some blue sky thinking around how do we redesign education and workforce development systems? And I think, you know, if we think about it, a lot of these programs that um, workers are turning to now are really built for a very different time, right? A lot of them, the unemployment insurance system, others like date back to the new deal, right? So we have, we're trying to build people, workers for the future based on the systems of the past. And, you know, I think we are, really starting to feel that pain point in some really new um, and I you know I think disturbing ways and so how do we how can we kind of take this jump together where we're not just trying to kind of patchwork together the current systems but really you know building one from the future for the future
0: yeah and you know one of the I mean there's several things that we could unpack there right but you know you you have everything from early Uh, I'll call it challenges in the early talent development systems. You mentioned middle school students, right? And I remember one of the studies I was involved in, but there's been several studies to support girls, for example, by middle school are based on societal signals, messages they get from their own teachers, from their own parents, right? from the media right right start to develop an idea that that kind of career field is not for me this is true for students who are underrepresented minorities right and so you know you have these uh, biases that get introduced at a middle school level that that all of a sudden start to have various students shut down you know their their openness to what careers are and then you know so so and then you get you know into say mid career professional who has been really good at something for a long time, right? Loses their job. It's like they lose their identity and the energy that has to be mustered to just go and learn something new or to pivot into a career. It's, you know, it can become overwhelming for people. So, uh, you know, we've got a a lot of barriers in the process there. And I, but I like the fact that you guys are thinking about starting as early as middle school when I think about companies, right, I'm curious what you're seeing in the realm of companies building early talent pipelines. Like it's one yeah. thing to go out into the market of Candace Now. It's another thing to say, especially with equity, right? Most of the companies that I'm aware of that are making any progress on equity in their workforce are starting very early, right? Like I would call pre-employment initiatives, right? Not just the, the actual recruitment and hiring, but like they're there. So tell me a little bit about what you see in that, in that landscape?
1: Yeah, definitely, so um, big picture. So we have um, something called the Corporate Action Platform, which I encourage folks to check out. So this is really a place uh, particularly for Fortune 500 companies to come and really um, learn from one another as they really build out kind of their worker center practices, including like how they build out these um, pipelines of new talent. And we have an impact employer framework that goes along with that model that outlines kind of six levers that employers can pull like as, as part of those activities. Uh, since COVID, we also have a recover stronger initiative that uh, is as part of that work and we have companies such as Autodesk, Salesforce, Microsoft, Walmart, Postmates, and others who have signed on to this commitment to really ensure that they're keeping their employees at the center of their recovery efforts, right? So I think it's really super exciting. Um, I think you know there are companies that we work with like Salesforce, um, Best Buy, SAP that have very workdays. Another one that had very specific you Know pre employment investments that they're making, and that could be with you know some um, organizations like Europe, obviously, that has a really strong evidence base for developing um, young adults and getting them on track for, for jobs uh, in these industries. Could also look like um, Best Buy invests in teen tech centers, you know, in communities and actually helps. Teenagers kind of get exposed to technology jobs like through that um, aspect of their yeah. investment, but I do think it's like it's critical uh, that companies start to look at how do they build these diverse pipelines of talent. And I think it's great that we're starting to see some real intentionality around that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's not as simple as you know you you know you just post a job right and you know, you, you get, you get the right town spread. In fact, a lot of the employers I've talked to have, you know, they've dramatically shifted their recruiting where they were almost exclusively hiring uh, graduates out of college that are now, you know, I mean, they're, they're thinking much more big brand name organizations, thinking much more about community colleges, thinking about the up type organizations, right. Where they're, they're, you know, they're, they're having to proactively go find new talent pools that they haven't paid any attention to in the past, right? And so, you know, I'm encouraged to see that at the same time, it's kind of the early days of, you know, I I can't go and cite for you, you know, a dozen case studies of companies that have, you know, dramatically shifted their, their, you know, mix of, of employees they've hired in terms of, you know, underrepresented minorities or, you know, an industry that's male dominated, making big progress of female, there's little examples, but we, we're still at the, you know, we're, we're in the infancy of that.
1: Yeah, definitely the the early innings, right? Because I, I would say, um, even looking at Europe, which is well-established, great evidence base, you know, to take something like that to scale, right, is yeah. a huge endeavor. And so I think um, we definitely have issues around scale. I think we have you know, issues around who pays, right? What is the role of the public and private sector, right? And in, in this work, um, be interesting to see how that uh, plays out in the future. You know, I think there's also, you know, like, as we've talked about, like the role of the individual, right? And how can we, you know, give individuals the informed resources that they need to make good choices. So I think it's, um, There's a lot of work that (laughs) that remains to be done, but I also think that there's a lot of great, you know, examples that we can build off of. And I think getting the right collaborations in place and the right kind of aligned incentives kind of set up across the ecosystem will take us far.
0: Yeah, and on that note, you know, that's uh, we've got a few minutes left in our allotted time, but I, I know you've spent a lot of time. JFF has thinking about uh, things like the financing of these kinds of initiatives, right? Uh, you know, innovation in the financing, the public-private partnership. You know, where the individual plays a role, right? And incentives, right? Aligning incentives. So maybe just give us a little bit of a peek into some of the big ideas you see on the horizon. For what I'll call upskilling, reskilling, or education uh, financing innovation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we are launching an initiative called Financing the Future, which is really digging into this very question. Um, we're interested to see, you know, how do some of these models like income share agreements, you know, how effective are they for kind of different types of students and workers? Um, again, like what is the role of corporations in this? Right? How can they Utilize you know their dollars in some innovative ways to help their uh, folks advance. How can we kind of rationalize some of the federal funding around this? Like I think there's we're going to see. My guess is in the these this next year, a, a lot of folks who are falling between the gap of Pell grants and We a training dollars, right? And so what yeah. do we do with the folks who don't fall in one of those buckets? Um, you know, debates on the Hill, we at JFF are in favor of uh, short-term health. Um, We think that's an important change we made. A lot of folks are against that, but so I think that's, you know, we hope to see that move at some point, but just also looking at some of these different, you know, innovators in the field, whether it be um, Climb Credit or just companies that are looking at like, how can we help individuals get the training they need faster without taking on huge amounts of debt. So that's what we're yeah. really interested in, in cracking that and looking forward to finding ways to partner with you guys on that as well.
0: Yeah, there's, you know, I'm encouraged by, you know, some of the examples. I mean, you mentioned ISAs, you know, income share agreements. I, I quibble with the, the marketing of the name, right? You know, income share doesn't sound like a real exciting thing as an individual. <laughs> But, but the, the concept of it, if things are aligned right, and they can be, it's very powerful. It's mainly been applied in the university student, you know, context. But I think there's some real innovations happening with boot camps, employer, you know, kind of versions of that. And, you know, the education as a benefit movement, you know, it's a powerful one because it's, it's enabled companies to make, I'll summarize it my way, make bulk rate purchases of, degrees, essentially, right, for their employees, the universities, because they're able to get large volume, and their their marketing costs are really taken out of the equation because it's built into an employer program, it's actually reducing the cost of higher education. And I can't think of many things that are actually reducing the cost of higher education. So, you know, that that kind of stuff, I'm excited to see more of. And, uh, you know, I certainly think there's a lot of room for innovation out there. Uh, but but at the end of the day, right, we you know we're gonna be in a place where we know the rate of upskilling and reskilling is increasing, right? Not decreasing. Yep. And so it's gonna be incumbent upon us not just to find the, the dollars for this, but the time in the day, right? And exactly. so that's yep. that's another area of companies investing in in taking time from the day of my workplace to let me Pursue these educational programs so
1: and I think too, also figuring out how you embed it in the workday right, how do you make, how can you really start to see how can we build kind of training and skill attainment and. um, Certification of that attainment in the course of a person's regular job right, so I think there's a lot of innovation and kind of integration that can come in that space.
0: Yeah, so I, so maybe we'll uh, we'll do a follow up next year and talk about you know what what you're seeing uh, and doing and the uh, the time and financing innovation of the space because yeah. those are going to be critical factors. But uh, Maria, thanks again for joining today. Uh, for those of you who uh, are, are planning to tune in next week, my guest is going to be uh, my longtime friend and former colleague Stephanie Markin, who is the executive director of education research at Gallup. We're going to check in with her on some of the new insights that they've uncovered over the last couple of years. So uh, anyway, Maria, thanks so much for spending the time with us. And I'll look forward to connecting with you again uh, as a a follow-up show next year. Sounds good. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend.